This uh, passage of scripture we're in today is Mark chapter 15, and we're dealing with the death of Christ. What I'd like to do in this study, though, is offer a historical apologetic for the death of Christ. This is actually a section of scripture that skeptics, you may not know this, you might not have you know, been familiar with this, but they will regularly challenge and object to some of the claims being made in the Gospels. They'll suggest that, say, the robe that Jesus wore, this purple robe they put on him, that didn't happen. The quotes from the crowd, that didn't happen. That was just written there to make it look like Psalm 22. That um, his feet weren't really pierced by nails. I've heard that before as well. That uh, the sign over Jesus's head is not historical. That Simon of Cyrene, the guy that helped carry the cross of Jesus, oh, that didn't really happen. They just put that in there. That the Roman soldier... Uh, the, the soldiers would not gamble for Jesus's clothing. So these are some of the things that are important details around the death of Christ that oftentimes skeptics will just sort of dismiss. Now, if you hear your college professor tell you, oh, yes, well, you know, sure, maybe Jesus was crucified, but many of those details are fabricated. This is going to impact you. This is going to affect you, right? Because we all know when you went to college, your professor was the smartest guy you ever met. At least some of your professors were. <laughs> and um, and they're very much influence your thinking about things. Well, let's talk about that. We're going to get into that. But also, as we do this verse-by-verse study, and this is the Mark series. I'm doing verse-by-verse through the whole Gospel of Mark. You're welcome to join with the entire series. I have a playlist down below, so you could click and watch like the previous 63 studies in the Gospel of Mark. This is number 64. But we're also going to dig into the theology of the sufferings of Christ. So you're going to understand what he went through, historically validation about those claims, but also the theology, the meaning of it, the, the deep and important purpose of the cross, which is often challenged by progressive Christians nowadays. So I am Pastor Mike Winger here in uh, Southern California, hopefully helping you learn how to think biblically about everything. And we're going to start as we typically do, as when we do our verse by verse teaching, we're just going to read the whole passage. We're going to read straight through this big chunk of scripture. I'm looking around because I I forgot to turn my little fan on and it's summertime and it's getting hot in this house already. (laughs) And ah, there it is. I don't run the AC very much during streams because it creates noise and I don't want you guys to have to deal with that. But that makes me deal with some other stuff. So anyway, um, here we are, Mark chapter 15. Um, May God open our eyes and give us wisdom and insight and confidence in the truths of Christ. Here we go. Verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. Oh, by the way, this is the NASB. Through the entire Mark series, unless I accidentally messed up there, I'm always using the NASB for consistency. It's not the only Bible translation that is worth using, but I I think that uh, it's good and it was what I chose for the Gospel of Mark. So wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers, verse 16, took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then... They brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated a place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. 
the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now that is like, we're, we're going to go, you know, in more detail in the future and stuff, but that's our stopping point for today. As far as the section of scripture we're going to cover, notice this phrase, truly this man was the son of God. We'll come back to this at the end, obviously, but this is like the climactic moment in the gospel of Mark. It, it starts in Mark 1, 1. Hey, um, I'll just show it to you here since I can easily put it on your screen. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, right? And then there we get in Mark 15, you know, verse um, 39, where he's proclaimed as the son of God. And there's a reason why this is the first time somebody other than Jesus, right, is calling him the son of God in the gospel of Mark, even though Mark is clearly teaching he's the son of God. But there's a reason why at this moment he's called it. I'm going to save that for the end, but it's beautiful and it's terrible. And that is the cross. The cross is beautiful. The cross is terrible. It, it's, I'm intimidated teaching on this passage of scripture because I just don't think I'm up to the task of fully and rightly representing the meaning of what Jesus did on the cross, but nobody is. So I suppose, you know, here's humans talking about the, the greatest work uh, and love of God we've ever seen. All right, let's dig in, <clears throat> in detail. Um, wishing to satisfy the crowd, it says in Mark 15, 15, that Pilate delivered Jesus, had him, uh, before he was crucified, had him scourged. So this is something Pilate did not have to do. Again, this is one of the reasons why in my discussion about Pilate and like what's his character like, how he's being presented, he's not like this innocent good guy. Like that's not consistent. He, he has Jesus scourged. He doesn't have to do this. Like he doesn't have to, even if Jesus was crucified, he didn't have to scourge him. And the scourging is extreme. The nature of scourging was, um, well, let me first talk about the historical apologetic here. I told you I was going to give you a lot of historical apologetics. And for those who are new to the term apologetics, apologetics doesn't mean apologizing. Those are two very different words. They have different meanings, at least in modern English. And apologetics is giving a, giving evidence or a defense for the things that you believe. I love apologetics. Um, I don't necessarily love apologizing, <laughs> but I do that still, and we should do that. Hopefully we can. At any rate, um, on the apologetics front, 
there are some who would sort of doubt every little detail. They'll acknowledge that Jesus was probably crucified, but they'll doubt every little detail. Like, oh, well, maybe they made up the scourging because they wanted it to look like Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed, you know. Um, so we're going to kind of like maybe dismiss that. But there is good and strong evidence, historically speaking, that before a person was crucified, they were typically scourged. Josephus, the Roman, not a Christian historian, he has three different times where in his writings, he says that they were first uh, chastised with stripes or um, flogged. Then they were crucified, that it was in that order. That was the typical order. Even the word itself, where it says that Jesus was scourged. That word is actually fragelao in the Greek. It's borrowed from the Latin flagello. And flagello, which sounds like some yummy sort of dessert, is not. Right? This would be this would be like a something like the flagello, right? You have a, a wooden handle. I have it on your screen for anybody who's on the podcast. You're just doing the audio. I'm showing it on the screen now. It's a wooden handle with leather strips, and it would have like it might have four, six, eight, ten leather strips coming out of it. And embedded into the leather strips would be bones or pieces of metal. Now, the way in which this would happen is so it's not just like, oh, it's like a whip hitting him. It's like it would sting bad. Maybe he'd bleed a little. Uh, this is designed to dig into flesh and tear it away. This is designed to <clears throat> destroy <clears throat> destroy a human's body. That's the nature of the flogging. There, there are historical accounts of people dying just from flogs, just from being flogged, uh, from getting the scourging that they would get. It's not um, just leather and their whips and it's like, yeah. This is like life-threatening, what was going on here. This was meant to destroy the body of a person. And we have records of how... Um, in, after a flogging, bones would be exposed and organs would be exposed. They might flog anywhere on the body, not maybe maybe the back, maybe just the back, maybe the back and the front could be anywhere. And there's records of people dying as their organs are... I'm just being honest with you guys here. This is gruesome, but crucifixion is gruesome. And Jesus did this for us. There is a myth that is often floated around about the flogging of Jesus, and that is that um, Jesus experienced 39 lashes. I remember hearing this when I was younger. And I, I don't think... I mean, it's not like... The leaders who were saying this were trying to like deceive me or something. They just they just believed this thing that was probably inaccurate. So the Jewish principle of you know we won't beat somebody with forty blows. We'll be we'll only beat them with thirty nine. That's a principle they they have because they're like hey forty represents judgment. Thirty nine is more like mercy. Okay, but Jesus wasn't beaten by Jews. It was the Romans, and they don't have any such symbolism about forty. There's no concern whatsoever. So Jesus could have been bitten, hit uh, by this scourging five times, 500 times. Like there's no limit to what it might be. It could be any number of times. We do have a hint, although scripture does not tell us how badly beaten he was specifically. It just says he was scourged. It doesn't tell us the details beyond that. It gives us other things that are hints though. Um, when Jesus is unable to carry his cross later on, that may imply that his beating was pretty severe and... Um, when we see that Jesus dies very early on the cross, the cross would normally take days to die, days for a person to die on the cross. But in this case, um, and the Romans had a way of speeding that up. They'd break the person's legs. I'll explain why that would make them die. It's kind of weird until you understand how the cross physically does what it does. But Jesus dies in six hours. And even Pilate is like, wow, that's, wow, he died quick. But it's be probably because this beating was severe and extreme. That's probably one of the reasons why he died quickly. Um, it's hard to take that in. 
but we're not now we are meant to see the, the horror of the cross but as as christians we often call this good friday the day that this happened we call this good friday because it's a glorious and wonderful thing it's like looking at if, if someone saved you from a fire and then they have you know burn marks on them and you're looking at those scars it reminds you of the suffering they went through to save you so we look at this and we our hearts are are broken and lifted at the same time because it's the nature of the cross now let's look at verse 16. I have tons to share with you guys today and I have not been sleeping enough. Just full, full, you've been warned <laughs> to the best I can. Um, so forgive me, but I'm going to move pretty quick, giving you tons of information. Um, but most of you, I think, enjoy that. You like that sort of thing. And hopefully my brain will hold out because um, mostly I just want to go take a nap. All right. Verse 16, Mark 15 here. Um, verse 16, the soldiers took him away into the palace. That is the praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. Now, I just want to pause for a second and say this. I'll mention this a couple times. If you guys take a trip to Jerusalem, and I've been twice, uh, to Israel twice, and it's a, it's a fantastic trip. It's a great trip to take. Um, I mean, it's nice to take uh, what I guess the Brits would call a holiday. <laughs> we call vacation here in the U.S. Um, to do that and, and go and explore and examine these things. But how exciting to be at places where you're like, I'm walking where Jesus walked. I'm, I'm, I'm where Jesus fed the 500. But, but here's what you want to know. Sometimes they tell you this is where this happened when really we don't know where it happened. Or maybe it's even the wrong location, but it's just there's a tradition, right? So they built a church there. So they have this thing going on there, but it's not very likely that it's the place. Well, one of those places, if you go to Israel, depending on who your tour guide is, okay? When we went, they took us and they said, this praetorium, this place where Jesus was, was, was brought, it's the fortress of Antonia. And you can actually go there and you can see it. Uh, the ruins of it, but you could go there still and see it, the Antonia Fortress. Most likely, though, as I'm studying this this issue and looking at the scholars, seem pretty consistently in agreement that that's not where Jesus was probably held. The Praetorium, where Jesus was judged by Pilate and and he got, went through these tortures, this is probably Herod the Great's old palace. Now Herod was the guy that was king of the Jews during Jesus's birth, though he had died and there was no longer a Jewish person. Herod's arguably sort of Jewish, but there's no longer a Jewish king in Israel at this point. Pilate is the Roman governor of Israel. He's probably in Herod's palace. That's probably where he's at. It was a very lavish place, but there's nothing left of it. It's just total ruins at this point. So it's not really good for tourism. Right? So you got to kind of be aware of that stuff um, when you take your trips to Israel. Some of the places are legit. You can go to the steps of the temple. Uh, there's like literal steps, the steps that would ascend to where the temple was. And you could say, we're like really confident Jesus literally walked on these steps, you know. But many other places, it's just a lot of guesswork. All right, let's look at verse 17. They dressed him up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim to acclaim him, hail king of the Jews. So they were, they were claiming, they weren't saying to Jesus, hail king. They were like mockingly saying it to the crowd, hail, everybody hail the king of the Jews. That's this Jesus guy. Um, there's, there, this is all mockery. There's nothing sincere about this. It's all meant to, to make Jesus look like a, a false king because they're giving him a crown of thorns or, and they give him a purple robe and they beat him and all this. Um, they kept beating his head with a reed. We'll talk about that in a second and spitting on him and kneeling down before him. Um, this um, this is not the first beating Jesus has received. In Mark 14, we read that they would they blindfolded him. This was the Jewish leaders. 
they they had their, their guys blindfold Jesus and punch him while he was blindfolded, saying, prophesy to us who hit you. Like, tell us who hit you as they hit him. Um, being punched while blindfolded is far worse than even just being punched. We don't know how much Jesus was beat, but... I mean, he, this, he's, this is the murder of Christ. This is the slow, torturous murder of Jesus that we're watching and we're seeing here. Uh, they refer to him, though, in this additional beating, they refer to him as the king of the Jews. And the irony here is that not only is he, yes, the king of the Jews, but the mockery and the spitting on him because he's so lowly, because he's being crucified, they're thinking that actually means he's not king. This proves he's not. But the truth is it proves he is. It is, in fact, in his suffering that he's being sort of enthroned. It is in his pain and his suffering that he is coming and being the king who lays his life down and saves us, the good shepherd. They hit his head with a reed, it says there in verse 19. I highlighted that for you. Um, well, we actually have more info about this reed. Where is this reed? Why are they hitting him with the reed? We get this in Matthew 27. So let's put these two texts together so we can understand it. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. So it's the same thing being discussed. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. After twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his hand, uh, on his, uh, they put it on his head. So he's wearing the crown of thorns. And then look at the reed. Here's the reed again. And the reed in his right hand, which was, this is my right hand. So they put a reed in his right hand and then they mock him and they, they say, hail king of the Jews. Um, then it seems, if you put Mark and Matthew together here, what they did was after mocking him with the reed, they took his reed and hit him with it. Why am I highlighting that? Because now the reed has new significance. Pardon me. The reed is basically the, the, to represent the scepter that a king or a or ruler would hold. They're holding the scepter because it represents their authority and their authority to judge because a scepter is also kind of a weapon. So they, you know, the scepter is meant to say, I have the authority to bring judgment down upon you. They hand this reed to Jesus. And then here's what blows me away. See if you see the symbolism I see here. They, they take the reed that represents his authority to judge and they hit him with it. They strike him with it. This is the cross. The cross is, right, Jesus says in John that the Father gave all judgment to the Son. He entrusted all judgment to the Son. And what does Jesus do with our judgment? He takes it on himself. He uses his own, under his own authority, he chooses to be beaten to take the punishment for my sin. I think this reed is like the subtle, little, and beautiful picture of Jesus giving, judging, you know, self-judging that we would be forgiven, taking on the punishment for our sin. I think it's amazing. I really do. And I've never heard anybody teach about it, but I'm sure someone has. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only person who's thought of this. Um, but I think it's really amazing. Beaten with his own authority to judge by his own by his own will. The purple robe, it seems, may have happened with Herod. In Luke 23, if you want to say where did he get the robe, it, he might have actually got the robe with Herod. And Mark is giving us a... Mark's obviously racing through the crucifixion account. Um, he's giving us important details, but he skips. Like, for instance, in, in two verses, he goes from... Uh, he skips three hours. He's like, and from 12, basically our time, 12 to 3, there was darkness on the land. And then at 3, it just skips to 3. Like, he just skips hours of events on the cross. Lots of things could have happened there. He doesn't give us all the details. One of the details Mark doesn't talk about is that Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod. Herod, this again, I know it's confusing. Hopefully, I'm not losing you here. There's different Herods in the Bible. One of the Herods is the Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus. Another one, I've talked about this recently, but another one is Herod Antipas who was... 
um, not at all like Herod the Great, but one of his descendants, but he's, he's the governor of the north area, Galilee, right? He's, he's a Jewish guy, right? He's a governor of the north area. He's the one that killed John the Baptist. He's the one that married uh, like his, his sister effectively. Um, and John was preaching against him. So this Herod is in Jerusalem, even though he doesn't, his, his area is not Jerusalem. His authority is not Jerusalem. He's there for Passover because all the Jews are. Everyone's there for Passover. They, they come every year for Passover. Herod is, um, this is, this is Pilate's opportunity to make peace with Herod. They're not getting along. And Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod. Why? Because Jesus is claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Herod, he is actually a Jewish ruler up in the north, even though he's not technically king. Although, side note, historically, Herod did like to be called king, even though he didn't officially have the title. It's kind of a weird thing that was going on at the time. All right, verse 11 of Luke 23 says, Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So then um, I'm, I'm suggesting that probably what happened is Jesus was sent to Herod briefly. Herod tries to uh, interrogate Jesus. He won't answer him. They dress him in a robe to mock him. Oh, here's the king of the Jews, right? And then this was like an occasion for Herod and Pilate to become friends. Now, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day for before they had been enemies with each other. Really interesting. Luke is very interested in politics. If you read the gospel, Luke, he's, he's aware of politics. He knows like what terms to use for different political positions and stuff like that. Like he's very aware of these things in Luke and acts. He's very meticulous about those kinds of details. And so he includes that detail about Herod. Um, it seems to me then that after Herod and his guys put the purple robe on Jesus, they take him back to Pilate. Pilate, um, he um, and his guys, I should say, put the crown of thorns on him, maybe continuing the jest, continuing the mockery. They put the crown of thorns on him and they beat him with the reed and that sort of thing. Jesus is also spit upon. Do you get the idea that Jesus is being mocked? In fact, if you'll notice in Mark's gospel, he actually spends more time and energy and words dealing with the mockery and shame of Christ than dealing with the physical pain of Christ. And I think this is significant that we would understand that what Jesus went through for us was not just physical suffering. It was legitimate, actual, real shame. He experienced the shame of the guilt of my sin, the shame of the guilt of your sin. I mean, have you, I think shame is one of the worst feelings in the world. Um, it's that regret, the guilt, not shame like somebody laughs at you and you feel embarrassed, not embarrassment, no, no, no. shame. I did that thing, I did this wrong thing and all I feel is shame. I feel terrible about it. I think guilt is one of the worst feelings in the world. People do crazy weird things to try to get rid of their guilt. Sometimes they rage and they have anger. Sometimes they, they, they turn inward with depression and sometimes they run to Jesus because he took our shame and he takes away your guilt along with your shame. But here they spit upon him and spitting on somebody is just a way of saying like, you are nothing, you are beneath me. And in a sense, Jesus is. He's becoming the lowest of lows because he's taking our place and he's carrying our shame. They also have the crown of thorns. Now here's where I'm just going to race through this, but I think this is just beautiful gems of biblical truth. The crown of thorns is ironic because it shows that Jesus's kingship will come with Jesus's suffering. That's how he will be Lord, you know, bring us into his kingdom. Right? He could just assert his lordship, but he wants to bring us to, to be members of his kingdom. So he does this through suffering. He'll be enthroned because of his suffering. So the crown of thorns is ironic in that sense, but there's more to it as well. I think Jesus here is in, on the cross. I think he's taking on the problem of the fall. Now, if you back up and look at the Bible, the whole Bible, and you think about the fall, this has been the problem that has plagued mankind from the beginning. 
Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit and this day you will die, right? They're going to now, the judgment is you guys are going to die. One of the curses that Adam receives, part of the whole curse is thorns and thistles, the ground will bear for you. You won't just get fruit, you'll also get thorns and thistles. Jesus wears on his head the thorns that God cursed Adam with because Jesus is taking the curse of Adam and taking our curse upon himself on the cross. I think this is so profound and beautiful. And to me, this is part of that unity of the Bible, that literary connection throughout the text of scripture that I, I'm just always amazed by, always amazed by it. But there's more. So Adam, not only was the curse, this sort of crown or the, these thorns that Jesus wears as a crown now, um, but he's also Adam, <clears throat> he's naked and ashamed. Before him and Eve were naked and unashamed. After the fall, they're naked and ashamed. And here Jesus, he's now going to be on the cross and he will be naked and just covered in shame. That's the emphasis in Mark, the shame of the cross. Hebrews as well. Hebrews says he despised the shame of the cross. I'll talk more about how shameful it was in their culture in a minute. But um, but Jesus is now, um, now, whether he was totally naked or not, we don't know, okay? There's some people who will say Jesus was completely without clothes on the cross. That's hard to stomach thinking that. It may well be that that's true. Um, I certainly wouldn't, if I was if you were drawing a picture, I would just add clothes because I think it's just inappropriate. But um, to continue doing that, he's no longer on the cross. Let's not do that to him. But um, but at the same time, it may have been because the, the, the Romans did sort of like bend to Jewish sensibilities in certain ways. It may be that they would have left like a loincloth on a crucifixion victim as a way of um, honoring the Jewish sensibilities. It's possible. The text doesn't tell us. And are you surprised the Bible's not going to sit here and dwell on on whether he was completely without clothes or not? The point is he's he's like he's unclothed is the basic idea there. And even if you're barely clothed in that time, they're going to consider that naked because this is different than our culture now. Um, if a woman was in a bikini in the first century, everybody would say she was naked. Whereas modern times we would look and be like, well, she's not naked. She's in a bikini. And I'd be like, well, look guys, that's like, there's not much difference. <laughs> so just let, just, you know, this is our, our culture. We've desensitized ourselves to these things. Uh, an underclothed person was considered naked. So, um, they spit on him. He's naked. He's, he's bearing the shame. He's bearing the cross. He's, he's, he's now like Adam's sort of corresponding, like fulfillment, right? Where he, he bears the, the crown of thorns. He's naked and ashamed. Um, also with labor, you will work the ground. That's what God told Adam with labor, hard labor. You're going to work the ground. Well, Jesus, he labored hard, but his labor was to do the works of righteousness. And he lived his whole life perfectly. He was sinless. He worked hard, but then he turns to us and just as Adam was told, you're going to be weary with hard labor, you'll work, work the ground. Jesus turns to us and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He's, he's fixing the fall. And to make this more clear, we even think of where he's killed as a place called Golgotha. And here at the place of the skull, a place of death, Jesus is going to die, which is the ultimate curse. And he dies for us. He might give us life. Like if you don't see the beautiful symmetry between the Old and New Testament, between the fall and the and and then Christ, um, I think you're not paying attention. <laughs> this is this is this is legit, man. This is what God has done for us. Now, one question you can ask is: Is there historical consistency here? Um, when uh, when some people they challenge these things, they go, "Hey, I don't think they put a crown of thorns on Jesus. I don't think they put a purple robe on Jesus or a reed and then say, "Hail, King of the Jews." They just beat him and put him on a cross." Um, now, there's no historical reason to say they did they didn't do these things. Sometimes this is just skepticism. 
sort of feeding itself. Um, you know, I'm, I, I just don't believe that because I don't like it. <laughs> so what it starts to sound like um, bias against against scripture. The question we can ask then is, is this, do we have accounts of Jesus having a robe, being mocked in these ways? Yes, we have multiple accounts from different different books of the Bible. Oh, they're Christian books. Yeah. But they're also historical accounts. And to ignore that is to just blind yourself to real history. So we have multiple accounts, but also we can ask this, are these accounts consistent with the types of things we see happening during crucifixions? And this is where we get to uh, Martin Hengel. He's like the guy on this. I wonder if I have his book here. Or if I put it back up on my bookshelf. Um, he has a bookshelf about, uh, a bookshelf. I have a bookshelf. He has a book about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a little short, small little red book that he's got. What did I do with it? If I wasn't so tired, I might just grab it. I've got, I have too many books. This I'm just trying try to cover them all. All right. But um, the in his book, in Hengel's book, he talks about how the norm for crucifixion, he's like the scholar on the topic, how the norm for crucifixion was they'd flog beforehand like the scourging, that was normal. Then the victim was often to carry the beam of the cross, which is not the whole cross, but probably the beam, to the place of execution where he was then nailed with outstretched arms. That, according to Hengel, is the norm for crucifixion. But he adds this. That's not all crucifixion was. That's just the norm. In addition to that, the soldiers were very imaginative about how they would torture and, and ridicule the people being crucified. So Hengel acknowledges this. This was just something the soldiers did. There was a crucifixion squad. These guys, these Roman guys that would, you know, enact the crucifixion, they would come up with their own ideas on how to make it worse, to mock the person, to ridicule the person. Maybe they would burn out their eyes. They would just do things. They would do things because they wanted to. And um, Josephus confirms this. In Josephus's book, uh, Jewish Wars, he says, that they were first whipped and then tormented, quote, with all sorts of tortures before they died and were then crucified before the wall of the city. This specific group of people that were crucified, not only were they flogged, but there was just random and different various ways of hurting and torturing and tormenting them before they were crucified. What I'm saying here is, here's a Jewish guy who's being crucified under the claim of being the king of the Jews. Many of these Romans hate the Jews. And it's normal in their custom to ridicule and, and mock and try to add difficulty to the crucifixion process. It's completely historically consistent that they would use this robe and the reed and the crown of thorns. These types of things are consistent historically. So I don't see any objection to those things. Um, that's reasonable personally. All right, verse 20. Back to Mark 15, verse 20. It says here, after they'd mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. Um, well, later these garments, his own garments will be taken off again because they'll gamble for them. Um, but it says here, they led him out to crucify him. Now, this is again where I think there's traditions that have gotten in the mix that we probably want to dismiss. There's something called the Via Dolorosa. You may have heard of it, but this is, this is um, basically it's, it's what's, the Via Dolorosa means the 14 stations of the cross or the way of sorrow is what it means, but it refers to the 14 stations of the cross. And if you go to Jerusalem, you can actually stop at each of these stations and they have specific spots where they think specific things happened. Like you'll be walking and there's a sign and then someone goes, yep, that's the place where Jesus fell the first time while he was carrying the cross, the cross beam. And you walk a little farther and they go, that's where Jesus fell the second time. That's where Jesus fell the third time over here. 
one of those stations is, this is where a lady named Veronica wiped Jesus' face. Let me just say, this is probably not true. Like, we do have an idea of where Jesus may have been crucified in Jerusalem specifically. I'll talk more about that later. But the idea that we have 14 stations of the cross, is it doesn't seem likely at all historically. And it's exciting though. Like if you've ever, and forgive me, if you've been to Jerusalem and you walked the 14 stations and it meant a lot to your heart, that's why people do it. That's why it still happens is because it's desirable. It's like, I want to go there and walk in the steps and see the exact spot where this happened and that happened. It's it's probably not the case. Uh, there's a good chance that this Veronica person never existed. Certainly, we don't read about her in scripture. It seems like a much, much later tradition that has come up for, for who knows what reason. Um, yeah, it might be comforting. It might be tempting. But this is where I, being one of those annoying Protestants, I'm going to say, um, I'd rather have the safety of God's word than false comforts from mere traditions that are probably not true. I'd rather have the safety of simply what God has said. So I want <clears throat> I want that, but I also want to be able to defend these things historically. And I'm not going to add to Jesus all these 14 stations when historically the defense of them becomes extremely difficult and isn't even tied to scripture. So I'll move forward. Um, so at this point, Jesus is actually carrying his cross, which again was probably just the top beam and not the whole cross. Images of Jesus carrying a physical cross. It's possible. It just seems more likely more likely that he was just carrying the cross beam and the terms they're using in scripture would apply to that as well. And that's fine. Um, but the, but the question we should ask is why, why is Jesus being made to carry this thing? Why is he being asked to traipse around on his way to his own death, carrying the cross beam? And the whole idea here is public shame. The, the dead man walking event of Jesus on his way to the cross is is exactly that. Everybody in Jerusalem looks at him and they know that's a guy who's getting crucified. Like this is a horror to everybody. And he is, he's accursed. This is their view of him. He's accursed. I'll talk more about that briefly here in a minute, but this is so shameful. Uh, Isaiah puts it this way, that Jesus is bearing our griefs, that he's carrying our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Yes, it was my fault. It was because of my fault, I should say, that Jesus was crucified. But we, we, we esteemed him stricken. This is the view that they have as Jesus walks with the cross. We esteemed him stricken. His followers might be mourning, but I'll tell you what they're probably not doing. They're probably not thinking that this is his great victory. They think this is his great shame. And they don't realize that those two are the same thing. Don't for one second forget how incredibly and irrevocably shameful this moment was. I mean, if you cringe at the pain Jesus suffered on the cross, which was intense, and we'll, we'll discuss that, please cringe at the shame he experienced because I think that that was the worst part. I think it was. In Deuteronomy, this is how the Jew would see it. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, we read that if a person is put on a uh, piece of wood, if they're hung on, on wood, which the term hanging would be used to not just talk about a noose, but if you were you know, nailed to wood, they would call that hanging as well. Like you're hanging, a, a, you know, when you when you hang a, 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 a picture frame in your house, you're hanging it. There's no noose, it's, it's nails. But in Deuteronomy uh, 23, um, 21, sorry, 21 verse 23, it says that a corpse, a body, should not hang on a tree all night, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. Now this was, 
this was the practice they would have at the time. When somebody was killed, maybe they would be killed by stoning or whatever, they'd put them and hang them on a tree. They'd fix them to a tree. It doesn't necessarily mean it was by the neck, right? But they would put them on a tree somehow. Um, they would leave them there as deterrent so that everybody would see this is what happens when you commit these kinds of crimes. But God in, in the law says, don't do that. I don't want to see these bodies just hanging around. That's something he doesn't want for the Jews to do. And so he says, the person who hangs is accursed of God, right? So then don't defile the land by leaving that cursed person just hanging there. In Jewish mentality, Jesus getting hung on a cross is to say he is cursed. And this is not just something I'm making up, right? It's in Deuteronomy, but it's also something Paul taps into. And he says that this is part of the theology of the cross in Galatians 3.13. This is something progressive Christians will not want to admit sometimes. And I, I hope if you've been raised as progressive Christian that you'll hear this. Please hear this. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus is carrying that wood around to show that he's the one who's taking the curse. He's becoming a curse for us. Jesus is dying in my place, suffering my curse, being judged for my sins. That's... Uh, maybe a more careful way to say it is the judgment for my sins is placed upon him as if he had done it, even though he never sinned. But there's more. So that's in the Jewish mentality. Jesus is walking around this cross. He's cursed. Now, what did that do to the disciples? They think he's this Messiah who's going to rule and reign. No matter how much he tells them differently, they think he's going to come and bring political victory. And they see him now and they're like, what is going on? He's cursed. He's cursed. How does this? I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. No wonder why they're not even there for the burial. The women are there, but the disciples themselves have given up. They quit. When they first hear reports of the resurrection, they're not, they're like, I don't know, maybe, I don't really, you're probably crazy. You know, like they just, it doesn't, it's not compatible. Jesus being accursed is not compatible with him being Messiah in their mind. But I'm saying it's the most important thing he does for us is to take this curse. This offensive part of the gospel is the most important part as well. But it's also, for the Romans, it's different. The Jews see it as a curse. Romans see it a little bit differently. They see it as just um, uh, not exactly cursed in that sense, but shameful. It's a shameful, shameful thing to be crucified. It's a horrific thing. The Roman writers who talk about crucifixion in the early centuries, they like don't even use the term. They'll say like avoid the term. Like, a you know, we, we have certain words we avoid. Like if somebody dies, you might say they passed away because we're just trying to like make it softer because it hurts to say that. It hurt them to say the word crucified. They would say like extreme penalty. They would say that, the extreme penalty. And it was just known that that was the crucifixion. It was um, this Jesus who was ex ex receiving the extreme penalty, who was considered shameful to the Romans, cursed to the Jews. His leaders have rejected him. His followers have forsaken him. His own people have turned away from him. And now Roman hands are killing him when they thought it was the Messiah that would kill the Romans. That's this Jesus, and it's the whole point. It's his whole agenda all along is being accomplished here. If you don't understand this moment, you don't understand the gospel. Verse 21, but you will understand it. Listen in, because we're going to get into it. Um, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, some push against this. They say, oh, this didn't happen. This is, again, this is like, you know, symbolism, the gospel. And this is what often people do. When they want to ignore what's, in the text of scripture say it's not historical. They'll just guess at what the secret motives of the authors were. And so they'll say, well, you know, Mark just wants you to be thinking about taking up your cross. So he makes up this Simon guy. 
that seems very far-fetched when we think of the actual data we have in front of us here. So for one thing, Roman soldiers, historically, they were allowed to compel a citizen or a civilian, I should say, to carry something for up to a mile. This was a rule. A Roman soldier could be like, you, here's this, carry it for a mile. And you had to carry it for a mile. After that, you could go back and be about your business. That was like a normal Roman rule that was going on while they were under their uh, Roman Roman um, um, occupiers. Now in Mark 541, um, no, that's the wrong, Matthew 541. In Matthew 5.41, we have this statement from Jesus that suddenly takes on new meaning in the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And now you're like, oh, wait. So literally, they could force you to go a mile. So when they're telling Simon, bear this thing, he has no choice. This was like a typical thing. The Romans aren't going to do it themselves. They're going to make some random Jew do it because they don't feel like it and they have the power. So that's historically consistent. Now, these weren't welcome words, by the way, from Jesus, but this is what he calls us to do. He's like, yeah, there's somebody who's using their power in your life in an unhealthy way. They're, they're overexerting. They're asking seems too much of you. Give them even more because they deserve it. No, as a way of showing that, that, that you are a gracious child of God. Tough words, good words, words to live by. Now, here's why I would say that it's weird, like just downright weird and strange to suggest that Simon of Cyrene is a non-historical figure invented by the apostles or the, or the writers of the gospels. Um, look at what he's called in Mark. Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's weird. Why doesn't he just say, and they made... One of Jesus' disciples take up the cross and fall. They made, Peter was by there and he made Peter carry the cross. So that would actually be a lot better because you would have Peter actually having forced to carry the cross, which will be there. Or maybe it's one of the other disciples. Or maybe it's John, you know, the beloved. But no, it's, it's this guy. And we learn a lot about him. His name's Simon. He's from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. So he's, he's, he's African. He's from North Africa area. There was a Jewish, there was literally historically, we've got the confirmation. There was a Jewish community in Cyrene at the time. And so he's there in North Africa. He's visiting for Passover, as all the Jews do. They all go to Passover, for, go to Jerusalem for Passover. We know his children's names. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. If he's made up, why, is, why are we getting these details about him? Legendary, legendary people, when they show up in literature, later on in the Gnostic Gospels, the weird books that don't belong in your Bible and aren't in your Bible. Oh, there's Caiaphas's ossuary again. I don't know why I keep clicking on that because <laughs> uh, I didn't sleep enough. So um, the um, I was telling you something that was really good, uh, something important. It was about it wasn't in my notes. It was just in my head. What was it? I totally lost it. This is, I'm sorry, guys. I'm operating off way too little sleep. <laughs> this is the worst for you. I mean, um, okay. So Simon of Cyrene. Um, Oh, legendary, legendary names. This is the idea. In the Gnostic Gospels, the, the apocryphal Gospels, they're not really part of the Bible. They didn't, weren't written by apostles. They're written later. They have invention. They have definite evidence of legendary development and invention. And what we see, Richard Bauckham in his work has noted, noted this, is that as they invent things, they lose names. As they invent things, they lose names. Do you hear that? This is not normal. If invention's happening, you're not usually getting, Simon, here's where he's from. Here's what his kid's names. Like you never see this with invention. And when they invent names, when they do have names, they have the wrong names because they're writing from later times and different locations. But these names fit. These names fit. Not only that, Mark, we have found, it seems consistent. He uses names when, when it seems the people he's writing about 
are available to the original audience. Mark was probably written pretty early and he's writing to an audience who it's who who when he says like so and so it's because they can access that person and talk to them and get their testimony and find out more about the healing of so and so here we get a name right we get Simon of Cyrene but we, but the emphasis is not his names it's his kids the father of Alexander and Rufus it seems that Mark is hinting that the original audience knew Alexander or Rufus or both of them well when we go to the book of Romans before I give you this let me tell you Mark most people think Mark wrote from and probably to Rome. That he was probably in Rome and he was writing for a Roman audience initially. An early audience who still had living witnesses with them and he puts their names there. Well, in the book of Romans, which Paul later wrote to Rome, in Romans 16, 13, he mentions a Rufus. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. And notice this. There's a Rufus known to the guys in Rome and his dad's out of the picture. It may be that um, Simon of Cyrene had died at this point. And so Rufus and his mother are mentioned, and Rufus is perhaps still in Rome. That would be very consistent. Like, we're not pressing anything here. We're not, oh, I didn't show you on the screen there. That's Romans 16, 13. This is just, you know, an, an undesigned coincidence in the scripture that we have this going on. What I'm suggesting is even things like, Simon of Cyrene seems to be very much a historical event, even if you didn't believe that the scripture was inspired of God. Um, that's pretty cool. But what we're getting here, though, in Mark 15, 21, is also the idea that Jesus is suffering great fatigue. He's very tired. He was up all night. He's received multiple beatings. He's received the flogging, right, which the scourging, which may have resulted in massive blood loss. And he seems to lack the ability to carry the cross the whole way. Now, this is, again, where skeptics chime in sometimes. And they'll say, hey, uh, you know, did Jesus carry the cross or did Simon carry the cross? Which one of them carried it? And it do, Mark doesn't say Jesus never carried his cross. But it, it never says that. He just says they, they uh, I'll put it on your screen here. They led him out to, be, to crucify him and they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country. At some point, Simon is being asked to carry Jesus's cross, to bear his cross. Some think Jesus carried it with him like it is in the Passion uh, movie, the movie called The Passion of the Christ. Um, others would say Jesus carried it for a while. He collapsed. You know, they tried to make him. He, he couldn't carry it. And they made this other guy carry it as well. Um, at any rate, it just looks like it historically happened. Verse 22. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And there's a lot of discussion about where Golgotha is or and what Golgotha is. Um, Golgotha is is a location that is obviously outside the walls of Israel. We, we get that also from, from uh, Hebrews, but the walls have changed over the years, so the modern walls don't represent the old walls. Um, but what's Golgotha? Some think Golgotha is um, actually the burial place of Goliath's body, or his bones, um, that David brought the body of Goliath, his head in particular, to Jerusalem. And maybe Golgotha, Goliath, they sound similar, but that's pretty thin evidence to go on, right? These things sound similar. Therefore, it's the same place. Really, it's just place of a skull. Um, it probably just represents like a place where maybe people were crucified. Like, I think Jewish mentality, they want to know areas that are unclean. And they might even give it a name to help you know this area is an unclean area by calling it something like place of a skull. When Judas hung himself and his blood spilled out, this became an unclean location. They decided to bury strangers there because... Again, it's, it's 
that makes it also unclean. The burying of bodies there makes it unclean. And they call it Field of Blood, not just to commemorate probably Judas, but also to maybe warn people, hey, what's that? That's the Field of Blood. Oh, so then you know if you're like on your way to make a sacrifice, you don't want to walk through there, right? Because you don't want to take any chances of getting unclean. So it may be that the place of the skull is simply saying this is an unclean place and it's a, it's a location of death. That's the emphasis. This is where death happens. And this is where Jesus dies. And it's where death dies. It's where Jesus takes on death and defeats it. And that is, I think, the theological significance of the place. Verse 23 says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Uh, this was like a like a sour wine. Some, some translations will say vinegar. Uh, it's just like it's a sour wine is what it's really saying there. Um, it, it was probably presented to Jesus as something like a sedative. It was believed that myrrh, and I don't know if myrrh does this or not, but it was believed they at least thought that myrrh would provide like a narcotic type effect, uh, not um, like a pain-killing effect in that sense. And um, Jesus doesn't receive it. He won't take it. The, the answer here is to say he will not reduce his ex his experience of suffering that's pretty it's pretty crazy to think about but it's also to say he fully took on these things he truly experienced them now later gnostic works were really offended at the idea of a crucified messiah this was very offensive um, we have records of romans mocking christians for believing in a in, a, in someone who was crucified so Gnostics came up with solutions where they were like, well, Jesus, he was on the cross, but he felt no pain. He felt no pain. Or Jesus was like, like the whole idea of little, uh, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It's like he felt no pain. He was sort of distanced because he's not really, his body isn't really him. He's not really there. Kind of, it's just this weird Gnostic separation between physical things and spiritual things as if physical is evil and spiritual is good. And that's not a biblical view. Um, at any rate, yeah, Jesus didn't take it so he could experience that pain in full because he truly went through all those things. There's also an Old Testament connection I'll briefly mention, which is Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a very messianic psalm. The whole thing is you could study it on your own. But this is where it says, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink, which is to say the same thing. I kind of can't help but picture the Lord of the Rings. Forgive me, you guys. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings, which gives an, a, uh, an example of something like this, where... Mary and Pippin are being carried carried by these orcs. They're they're being carried to try to take them over to Saruman so he could try to get the ring. Anyway, so they're they're suffering a lot there, and the orcs jokingly say, "Give them something to drink, boys." And the guy they give him this black, nasty, like probably like cheap alcohol type thing, and he's like <laughs> spitting it out. That's the grog of the Roman soldiers, effectively, that they're trying to give Jesus, and he refuses. So he can fully experience these things. Forgive my dorky analogies. All right, verse 24. Let's read on. Um, uh, Mark 15, 24. And they crucified him. Now, that's it. Mark just says they crucified him. He does not describe the scene. He doesn't give us any real, like, he doesn't labor on the details of the crucifixion. I'm going to explain them more to us, but here's the reason. Mark's audience had seen crucified people. Like they had all seen it before. And he just says they crucified him. Everybody loads the mental image of a crucifixion. They know it. They know it well. Us far, far removed from that culture, we think of a cross sometimes as a decorative piece of jewelry, but it was actually a slow and painful torture device. It was meant to cause quite a lot of suffering and pain. When they crucify a person, 
though Mark doesn't labor on this, you know, they drive the nails into the hands, into the feet. Uh, when the nails go into the hands, the text is probably talking about this part of the body in the, um, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word for hand, when they nails in my hands that Jesus talks about, it refers to this whole section, right? In English, I don't think we have a word for this, for, for like from my forearm up through my fingertips. I don't know if I have a word for that. Medically, if there is one, I'm not aware of it. It's not part of our normal vernacular. And they, however, in Hebrew and Greek, they say, you know, pierced his hands. That refers to anywhere in this area. Um, I think most people would say the nails probably went into the wrist right here. This way, they, they wouldn't tear. If the nail went into the hand, it could tear through and the person could fall off the cross. Sometimes a person was tied to the cross. In Jesus' case, it was nails. Um, but if a nail went through the wrist here, that would mean, and they've done medical research on this. Later on, I'll link uh, an article on this topic if you're interested in looking more into it. I don't know why you want to, but you might. Um, but the nail going here would not only pierce and damage and injure, but it would cause continual pain as the weight of the body is pulling on those nails. And that nail is pressing against a major nerve that runs right there in the wrist. And so um, just I can't imagine the suffering that he would have gone through there. His feet were also nailed. We'll come back to that a little bit later. And while on the cross, the person's arms are pulled out and would actually dislocate the shoulders most likely. And then the body is just hanging like dead weight. This causes the lungs to be opened, actually, to be in that position with your arms out being, you know, suspending, taking your body weight and pulling it up and out. This causes the lungs to be open so that when a crucified person is breathing, they have to like push up on the nails in their feet, in this case, to push up and stand on those nails to, to like let their arms lower a bit so they could inhale or exhale, excuse me, and then relax and their body would naturally inhale again. So just the act of breathing would require pumping up and down on the cross, which is why this was a perfected method of horrible, horrifying torture. Victims of a cross would generally die when they lacked the ability or, or the willpower to continue pushing themselves up and down and breathing. They might die of heart failure, asphyxiation, something along those things, along those lines. It's pretty horrific. Mark just summarizes, they crucified him. Because his audience knows exactly what this is. They've seen it before. It also says they divided his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Now, this is again where um, skeptics are going to push back. And I've heard it many times, so I'll mention it to you guys. I'd like you to be prepared to discuss these things with skeptics. They'll say, this was written to look like Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 clearly says, they, they, cast, they divided my garments and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is like written so similar, the wording so similar, it was meant to look like Psalm 22. Well, we all agree it was meant to look like Psalm 22. We just disagree on whether it actually looked like Psalm 22 or not in real life. So if we're going to test this, this hypothesis, what we should look at is, does the idea of soldiers gambling for Jesus's clothing, is that consistent with what we know of Roman cohorts, Roman execution squads? I'll put it that way. There's a historian named Sherwin White, A.N. Sherwin White. And you know he's smart because his name is A.N. Sherwin White and like nobody has that name. Um, but he's a British historian and was a British historian, president of the Roman Society. And he says the following about them taking Jesus's clothes as he's crucified. He says, as has been familiar since Momsen, legal texts confirm that it was the accepted right of the executioner's squad to share out the minor possessions of their victim. 
meaning they're, um, this is me talking now, meaning that they're like clothing, whatever, like they have a horse or something like that, but major possessions, like say a property that was not something the executioner squad could take. They could just take what was on the, the victim. I'll, now I'll quote uh, Sherwin White again. The custom which must derive ultimately from the custom of plunder on the field of battle became the subject of a legal dispute on which the Emperor Hadrian pronounced a solution. Now that Hadrian thing is interesting. Skeptics I've heard will say, hey, we have this ancient record from Emperor Hadrian saying that crucifixion squads are not allowed to take the property, the items belonging to the person crucified. And that's true. Except Hadrian came many, many years later. What an actual historian is saying here is this was the normal practice. The executioner squads we know from legal texts, it was their normal right to take the possessions of the victims. And that it was later when Hadrian made a new ruling that that was stopped. That's what he's trying to tell us. During Jesus's time, this was standard practice. Jesus's clothes. Now he had a nice bit of clothing. According to the scripture, he had a, a piece of clothing. It wasn't like billions of dollars, but he had a nice piece of clothing because it was woven in one piece. Now they make their own clothes at the time. They make their own clothes. So here, let me let me respond to a second objection skeptics have had that I've heard. The second objection is to say that Jesus's clothes wouldn't be desired by the soldiers because Jesus's clothes would be bloodied because he had been beaten so bad. Now that makes a lot of sense to a Western disposable culture, right? Where we just throw, throw it away, throw it away. It has a stain, throw it away, never wear it again. That is not even remotely what the culture was like at the time. If you're making your own clothes, and you have what is considered very nice clothing because it's woven in one piece. Well, you as the as the Romans, you're like thinking, I want that. But it's got blood on it. Well, I'll clean it. Like I got blood on me. It's part of my job, right? Like they're I'm just gonna wash it. Like this is not gonna ruin it for them. It's a very strange Western notion that you just throw away something because it has like a stain or because it got bloody. Um, that's not something that they're gonna do. So so yeah, there's another thing. Um now let me answer the question of whether they would gamble. Specifically, Psalm 22 says they cast lots. They gambled for my clothing. But is it realistic to think the soldiers wouldn't just take Jesus' clothes, but they would gamble for his clothes, like they'd roll dice for his clothes? And the answer here is, yes, it is. It's very reasonable to think this. We have ample evidence that the Romans loved games. They would play games. They would incorporate games in different things that they did. This was like gaming is like the Romans were gaming long before you ever were. We also have ancient rec ancient dice. Here's an example of a couple. Um, it's interesting. These are from the second century. They look an awful lot like modern dice, don't they? Yes, because we're using the similar dice as what they did. So Romans would gamble. They would do dice. This is a typical thing for them to do. The only question to ask is, do we have reason to think that the Romans had good, these Romans had good motive to gamble for Jesus's clothes as opposed to just chopping them up and equally divvying them out? And the answer is, yes, we do. Jesus's clothing was in one piece. You can't fairly divide this between an executioner's squad, but you don't want to cut it up because it loses value. So they roll dice for it. In other words, this is not only prophetically consistent with Psalm 22, it's historically consistent with everything we know about the period because Jesus really was crucified and really did fulfill scripture. So take that. All right, verse 25. Verse 25. Um, it was the third hour when they crucified him. This makes it about 9 a.m. when they crucified him. Um, now, I'll just pause here. I don't really have a good spot for this because Mark doesn't, doesn't highlight the nails, but other 
gospels do. They highlight the nails in Jesus's hands and his feet. Again, Mark doesn't want to labor on the details of crucifixion, probably because his audience knew about it already. So it wasn't necessary um, because it was, it was, it was still very close to the time when it happened. Now, there are, however, people who have said that Jesus, his feet were never nailed. This specifically his feet. So they're not really arguing his hands were not nailed, but his feet. So there's a, a specific guy from Harvard, a guy named G Dr. J.W. Hewitt, who published an article quite a while ago in the Harvard Theological Review. The name of the article was The Use of Nails in the Crucifixion. His conclusion in his Harvard article is... There is, quote, there is astonishingly little evidence that the feet of a crucified person were ever pierced by nails, ever. I want you to imagine if he was your college professor. You're a Christian, you walk in, and your college professor is like, you know, I know you read your Bible and you think, but many of the details were just fabricated later and they were added in and they're not historical. For instance, there's astonishingly little evidence that the feet of a crucified person were ever pierced by nails. I am confident there is some kid who was, who was a, raised as a Christian, went to college, heard that claim, abandoned his faith, went home and spent the rest, the next five years of his life until he got a little older and wiser, <laughs> mocking Christians and mocking the way he was raised and laughing at his old church, hopefully later to return and get smart about it. But there is evidence that there, that the, um, Archaeological evidence that the feet of a crucified person were nailed. In 1968, after this article was printed, the Israeli Department of Antiquities and Museums found something just north of Jerusalem in a cave tomb. It was in an ossuary, a bone box, and they found these bones of this properly buried adult male. Properly buried, we'll come back to that later in a couple uh, different studies from now. But this guy had this on him. This is his ankle. This is his heel, I should say, his heel bone. And in his heel bone, you can kind of make it, it's obviously very old. This is from like first century. We're talking like around the time of Christ. And this man had a nail still in his heel. I'll give you a better, this is like a recreation. It's the original, you know, or at least a replica of the original, along with like a recreation of what they're saying this would have looked like. This was a heel bone that had a nail driven directly through it. This, it seems to have been a mistake on the part of the executioners. When they drove the nail in, it, it drove into the wood uh, too hard or perhaps the nail bent and, and curved and they and it turned into kind of a hook. They couldn't get it back out. So what they did when they buried this man after his crucifixion was they hacked the cross apart and just buried the chunk of wood with the nail stuck in the, in the foot. They just tossed it all in there. And here it is. 2,000 years later, is it, is it Jesus? No, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus' tomb, but it's a tomb of a crucified man. Here's what it told us. There's astonishing evidence that the feet of a crucified person were pierced by nails. And here, like the undermining the faith of believers and stuff like that, it's just so often this is, this is the case. We just don't have all the evidence. Something else they found about this guy is this guy in his ossuary had broken shins. His shin bones were busted. Now, there are also the skeptics who will say that the breaking of the of the legs of the other guys on the cross, the two behind, beside Jesus, that the breaking of their legs to speed up their death, oh, that's not historical. That's just because they wanted to say Jesus had no bones broken. So he's like, he's like you know, pro prophetically, you know, fulfilling prophecy. Um, but in reality, this guy's shins were broken. So <clears throat> suggesting that they did have the practice and they did engage in it, specifically in Israel, because in Israel... They know the Jews have a rule where they're not supposed to have people hanging overnight. And so it seems like they would normally speed up crucifixions in Israel, at least when the when it wasn't 70 AD and they said, forget it. We don't care about your rules. Um, 
Those are breath mints. But you can have some of my breath, so why do you care? All right. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I, I get more ADD as I <laughs> I like to get less sleep. All right, so Mark 15, 26, let's move forward. Um, oh, and I want to speak one other thing real quick. I mentioned the robe. I gave you all the evidence for why the robe happened, why we should trust that they gambled for his clothing and all that. But here's the thing that blows my mind that I forgot to tell you earlier. This means that there was some Roman soldier probably walking around days after killing Jesus, wearing Jesus's robe that would have been recognizable. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if some of Jesus's own disciples saw this guy walking down the street wearing Jesus's robe. But this is not a tragedy. This is the beauty of the cross. He died taking on our shame, our nakedness, that he might clothe us in his righteousness. This was part of the, the design of God, right? That this guy's wearing Jesus' robe. He wants to give his righteousness to all of us that we might wear it and be blameless before God. I think it's beautiful. All right, verse 26. We get to the, um, the inscription on the cross. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now we read in the, in the gospels that this sign was placed over Jesus' head. Um, now some would say that that's not the case. Uh, they added that because they want to say Jesus is king or something. But again, there's no evidence that that's not the case. It's just a claim. There's actually several historical accounts that mention signs for those crucified. And on those signs would be written the things that person did to earn them crucifixion. Their crimes would be written. Here, they had to say Jesus was claiming kingship to get Pilate to kill him. They had no choice. This was the only way. But this backfires when on his plaque, on his um, etching or whatever, this piece of wood that's placed above him, it says he's the king of the Jews. This is an ironic bit from Pilate. It's not done in support of Jesus. Everything is done in mockery of the Jewish leaders. He wants to mock them. But it's true. It's just a certain fact of history that Jesus was crucified by Pilate. And um, the irony and the, the beauty of it is that he was crucified as king so he could become our king if we trust in him. All right, verse... 27, and I know this is a long study today. It's going to be long. I got so much to share with you guys. Um, sometimes I go long, and I never, you never complain, so <laughs> I'll just do it anyway. Mark 15, 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. This was to fulfill scripture. So it says here in verse 28, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now you'll notice this, we were talking about this last night. Um, this is in brackets. You see this in the NASB, those brackets? This is where a translation is trying to indicate this, this scripture, this verse, it's in doubt whether it appears in Mark or not. Now, I think it does appear, I, I should look into this uh, again. I forgot to do this before I taught it, but I think this same phrase appears in the other gospels. Um, so the question isn't whether it's said of Jesus, it's whether it was said in this place in Mark. And so it's in doubt, so it's in brackets. You can read more on that on your own. Uh, netbible.org is a great resource for reading about textual notes on things like this and um yeah netbible.org that's a good free resource for you so it, it was in fulfillment of isaiah 53 we'll talk about that later um but he's crucified with one on his right one on his left this is interesting because it's where jesus this is like the fulfillment of what jesus says where he's like can you drink the cup i'm drinking you know they wanted uh, james and john to sit on his right and left in his glory in his kingdom and Jesus translates that to talking about him on the cross. Like this is Jesus entering his kingdom. It's how he becomes king of, of our lives. Because there's two ways for Jesus to be your king. One, 
he comes and and destroys everybody and asserts his lordship because they won't they won't obey so they're kicked out of the kingdom and he rules and there's none of us so he rules without you his kingship is asserted as he kicks you out of the kingdom or he brings you into his kingdom but you're rebellious so this is the solution here he is in entering his kingdom through the cross and we enter through our faith in him in the cross it's it's great all right, so we get to verse um, 29, which says, Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. <clears throat> um, wagging their heads. I know this is weird in Western culture, like the idea of wagging your heads. So when we did one of our trips to Israel, um, I had an interesting encounter. You can, you can judge me if you want here, but... <laughs> <laughs> an interesting encounter. We were getting on the on, off the bus on our first visit, right? And you're entering into, I think it was Jerusalem, uh, which you, you get there later in the trip when you're taking the typical tours. But in Jerusalem, um, if I remember right, there were these young kids, young boys mostly, and they're carrying these little little olive branches, little tiny olive branches. Here's an example of wagging your wagging your head. And these little olive branches, they were selling for a dollar a piece. One dollar, one dollar, one dollar, right? And they're holding them up and you're getting off the bus and people are so excited. I'm at Jerusalem. I finally made it here. It was, you know, they had to save up. And they were able to do the trip. And there's these kids, one dollar, one dollar. And and the tourists are just buying these, these for a dollar. And they're like, oh, the kids are cute. And they're buying for a dollar. And I look over and I see this olive trees are like lining all over the place. They're just all over the place. The kids literally are walking next to the bus like olive trees way branches are like touching the bus and they walk up and pluck off a branch and they go one dollar <laughs> they're just selling it for a dollar and i was like i'm not gonna buy that for a dollar you just pluck it off the tree i can just pluck it off a tree. and i'm i'm like poor and so <laughs> certainly very poor at the time and um so i'm like I'm not gonna, i don't have i don't have money for that i have money for falafels but not that so the kid looks at me and he's mad at me because i've just called him out on his little scam and he's sticks his tongue out and he goes ah he, he wags his tongue and wags his head at me and i was like there's like they do that like people do that that's like still a thing like in the u.s we might shake your fist at somebody or maybe you give them the one finger salute or something mean like that it's just different in different cultures they wag their heads at jesus in this passage because this is a way of just reviling him this is a way of like flipping him off this is a way of of just giving physical symbols to say that to say that they can't stand him and they mock him you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself and come down from the cross this is not at all positive isn't all everything they say to jesus on the cross is mockery from the crowd everything all of it we'll get there there's even more stuff later um in psalm 22 we'll read about this again next time i get in the mark series which is Four weeks from now, Ju July 11th, will be the next time I teach in the Mark series. I'm sorry for the delay there. There's some other things I'll be doing for a few weeks. Um, but when we get there, we'll get into Psalm 22 in detail. But this is specifically prophesied in Psalm 22, and then it's fulfilled here. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. Then in verse 31, In the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, mockingly. Now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And even the people crucified with him are insulting and mocking him. Now this is where some skeptics would again, this is a historical apologetic thing going on here. They would say, did the thief on the cross ridicule Jesus 
or did he believe in Jesus? Which one was it? Which one was it? Now, Jesus is on the cross for six hours. At some point earlier in the first three hours, Mark records that he was ridiculed by both of the guys next to him on the cross. It seems during that time, maybe after the darkness happened, at some point, the guy on the, the thief on the cross looks at Jesus, sees what's going on, and he's like, he's like legit. He's for real. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's that point where he converts and turns and changes. He's, it's a deathbed conversion. Um, he goes from mocking, it seems, uh, echoing the crowd and mocking to believing in Christ. It was both. It was both. There's no contradiction there. It's just uh, forcing one to say there is. But there's a lot more in, these, in this uh, little section. Um, so there's the Psalm passage where they're like mocking Jesus saying, oh yeah, let God deliver you. Let God rescue you. You know, if you delight in God and he delights in you and stuff like that. And then they echo these similar words to Jesus on the cross from the leaders. So the Jewish leaders call him here King of Israel. And I want to point this out. I've been saying this the past couple studies. When the Jews talk about their king, they don't call him king of the Jews. They call him king of Israel. That's just the term they use. That's more appropriate for them. When the Romans talk about him, they call him king of the Jews. Mark preserves this difference. Whenever the Romans say it, it's king of the Jews. When the Jews say it, it's king of Israel. That's very interesting. That's just historical consistency. Why? Because we're getting a real historical account. This is the kind of thing fakers down the line aren't going to think of to write down. Um Let's see. Now about the sign. Uh, some say the sign didn't uh, happen. Or I guess I already talked about that. I just had it in my notes twice. All right. Going to the next verse. 33. Um, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness until the ninth hour. So three hours of darkness. And in that moment right there, these verses, Mark skips three full hours of events happening on the cross. This is where skeptics, we'll talk about this next time around, well, sometimes would say, um, Jesus is totally silent in the gospel of Mark. But when Mark skips three hours, this is not a teaching that Jesus said and did nothing for three hours. He just skips three hours. He's only interested in the darkness. But let's talk about that darkness, because this is a major point that skeptics will push against. And I I want to I want to get into it because it's exciting. All right. Um, some would say it's an eclipse. That this darkness is an eclipse. And saying it's an eclipse is a way of explaining the darkness naturalistically, um, which not isn't necessarily bad. I think sometimes the things God does miraculously in the Bible, they're more the miracles, the timing of the event, but the event happened through natural means. Other times that's just a straight miracle, like this could not naturally happen. Well, this is not an eclipse. Like we know it's not an eclipse. This is because there's a full moon during Passover. The the, the Jews have a lunar calendar. And based on the lunar calendar, there's a full moon. The full moon means the sun and the moon are opposite each other. They're not together. There's there's not going to be an eclipse during a full moon, a, a solar eclipse. It's not going to happen. Solar eclipses also don't last three hours. It would still be miraculous if it was a solar eclipse. So you can't really get away from the miraculous nature of this event. Uh, solar eclipses last, from what I've read, at most seven minutes, like maximum for a solar eclipse for any particular region, right? Because that, that, that like dark dot will move itself around on the planet. The um, the Catholic version of the Bible, the, 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 there's an official Catholic version. There's more than one that Catholics can read. Not like they can only read one version, but the official like U.S. Catholic version is the NABRE, the New American Bible Revised Edition. And in their version of Luke, they say, and they, I mean, they mistranslate here, and they say that it was because of an eclipse of the sun that the sun got dark, that the place got dark. So that's in Luke 23, 
verses 44 and 45. So I, I only say that to know that the eclipse thing persists. Some people say it, but it's it's not biblical to say it was an eclipse. It was just darkness and it's not explained. It seems to have just been some sort of act of God to create darkness. We'll explain why in a minute. But first, did it happen? Skeptics will claim. We don't have historians verifying this eclipse. Where are the historians that tell you that there was darkness, that there was a worldwide eclipse, a global eclipse? And I've heard someone say there was some Chinese historian, some Chinese records of an eclipse at the same time as the cross. I don't know if that's true. I've not been able to verify that, so I'm not going to comment more on that. Um, as I've looked into this, it seems that th th you you have a few historic historical sources that don't mention the eclipse. But that doesn't mean that much. Because it's not like we generally see them mentioning eclipses. It's not like they record every eclipse. They're not, you know, astronomy historians. So them not mentioning an eclipse isn't terribly significant. Especially if that eclipse was associated with a Jewish um, movement to replace in their minds replace caesar i would see them not wanting to mention it as well but we do seem to have a historical report so i'm going to read to you a long section of a historical report we get from a guy named Sincellus. now Sincellus writes about 800 a.d but he's not writing his own words he's citing a guy named julius africanus who writes in 220 a.d but julius africanus is talking about a roman historian who was alive and writing around 50 a.d a guy named thallus now, that might really bother you. What kind of chain of references is this? This guy, that guy, that guy. That's actually pretty typical in ancient literature. We often learn what someone wrote by getting a quote from some ancient person who still had access to those documents before they you know, stopped existing, before they just deteriorated. And so we know what that guy wrote because of what this guy says. Anyway, that's not really that weird. But here's what um, Sincellus reports. Julius Africanus says about Sincellus and the, the, not the eclipse, but the darkness on the land. I'll read it to you in full and I'll give you a little comment here and there. Um, on the whole, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. So he's just saying this happened during the cross, during the time Jesus is on the cross. They mentioned the whole world and the, and, and the Bible even sometimes says like the whole land and Mark here says the whole land. Um, this doesn't mean global. Now, it could mean global. Um, it's not like Mark knows whether it was like an eclipse in Eastern Australia or not. Mark is saying, all of us were in the dark. So they would use the term whole world to refer to less than the whole planet because they weren't even thinking about the planet or the globe. They were just using the term to say like all of the land, like all the areas we're familiar with, all the areas that we think about and talk about. That's what they're saying. So he says, in the whole world, there was there pressed the most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in his third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. So here, Julius Africanus says, Thallus, writing about 50 AD, he talks about it and calls it an eclipse of the sun. Now, Julius Africanus is not using Thallus to prove that it happened. He's using... He's referring to Thallus to prove it wasn't an eclipse. So read on. Listen to this. Why is that interesting? Because we're, we want to look at Thallus for a different reason. And if, and if our motives are different than Julius Africanus, then it gives us less reason to think he's making something up. Okay, so he says, For the Hebrews celebrate the Passover on the 14th day according to the moon, and the Passover of our, Passion of our Savior falls on the day before the Passover. But an eclipse of the sun 
takes place only when the moon comes under the sun. It cannot happen at any other time but in the interval between the first day of the new moon and the last day of the old. That is, at their junction. How then should an eclipse be supposed to have happened when the moon is almost diametrically opposite the sun? So he's giving the same argument that a modern astronomer would. Like, you don't get eclipses during, during a full moon season. Let that opinion pass, however. Let it carry the majority with it and let this portent of the world be deemed an eclipse of the sun. Go ahead and think that if you want. Like other others, a portent only to the eye. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at a full moon, there was an eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth, manifestly that one of which we speak. But what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake, the rending of rocks, and the resurrection of the dead, and so great a perturbation throughout the universe? Surely no such event as this record for as this is recorded for a long period, but it was a darkness induced by God because the Lord happened then to suffer. So Julius Africanus is arguing that Thallus acknowledges the eclipse or the, the darkness, but wrongly calls it an eclipse. Julius is interested in saying, look, this was God. This wasn't just a natural thing. This was a miracle of God to, to for a purpose we'll talk about in a minute. Um, that's super interesting because that is a historical record that he's appealing to, and it's a Roman record. We have one other source, and it's Tertullian. Tertullian writes about 197 AD, okay? So he's he's a lot closer to the events than us, and he says the darkness, the darkness in Jerusalem, that that was in Roman records, and he actually challenged people to go look. Now, tentatively, the least you could say is Tertullian seems pretty confident that Romans did record the darkness. Now, most Roman records don't exist today. So saying the Romans never recorded it is, is to make a big assumption. Tertullian says this. In the same hour, too, the light of day was withdrawn. When the sun at the very time was in his meridian blaze, in other words, it was like you know, noon, those who were not aware that this had been predicted about Christ no doubt thought it an eclipse. You yourselves have the account of the world portent still in your archives. This is in his book, Apology, Chapter 21. You can look up Tertullian Apology, Chapter 21. Read it on your own. It's free online. Interesting. Very interesting. What I'm suggesting is we have two lines of evidence that um, offer, offer some confirmation of this thing, both of them pointing to the idea that Roman records did have this event, but wrongly they thought it was an eclipse, even though that's not physically possible. But Mark's not interested in all that. The Gospel of Mark, he's just interested not in what caused the darkness. He's interested in the darkness. Why? Because of what it meant. Darkness in Scripture represents judgment. And I'll give you probably the best example. In Exodus, the plague of darkness came as judgment on Egypt. And it came immediately before. It was the ninth plague before the death of the firstborn, the tenth. This is the darkness representing judgment that happens before the death of God's God's firstborn, only born, only begotten. The darkness represents God's judgment that Jesus is taking upon himself. Not that he is displeased with Jesus. He's pleased with Jesus the whole time, I think. Um, but Jesus still becomes like the embodiment of your sin and my sin. We get this in scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to, to let us never miss the meaning of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, speaking of God, he made him, speaking of Jesus, so God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He made him sin. Not a sinner, not one who had sinned. He made him become the embodiment of our, of our wickedness. 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is this is imputation. This is what happens on the cross. Our sins are imputed to Jesus like in a legal fashion where it's like, I hold you guilty for the things they did. You are as though you did those things. And now the judgment, the darkness comes and the suffering of Christ, this intense pain and agony and suffering, he's paying for my sin in his suffering, in his blood. Wow. But the purpose is so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, meaning that my righteousness is not my own. I get his righteousness upon me. You're not earning yourself to, he to, to heaven. You're not getting your way there through your works. You're getting the gift of his righteousness. It is, Je is Jesus' works always that accomplish my salvation and not my own. Ephesians talks about our state before God this way, because you may feel ashamed. When you go to pray, oh, Lord, I'm ashamed. Can I even pray to you? Can I even come to you? Will you even listen to me? Will you even hear me? Do you still care about me? When you look at the shame Jesus took on the cross and you realize that shame I'm feeling, that's what he took so that I could be holy and blameless before him. That's the idea is that I am holy. We have a worship song we sing that sometimes bothers people um, where it says we lift up holy hands. And at least in my mind, if I sing that song, I'm thinking my hands are whole. I'm holy, holy from your forgiveness, holy because of your holiness. Like I'm not holy because of my works. I'm holy because of yours. You've given me the gift of holiness and righteousness. So I am righteous, right? By imputation, the same way Jesus became sin by imputation. I think. And that is the theology of the cross. Now in Mark 14, 34, as we continue in today's epic long thorough study, which I hope you're excited about. Um, it says at the, um, uh, make sure, oh, Mark 15, 34. I don't know why I went back to Mark 14, just for fun. Mark 15, 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, now, we're going to talk about this in great detail next time around. I'm going to save this, okay? So forgive me. I'm not going to cover every issue today. This, there's a lot I want to talk about here, especially as, as pertains to like one of the top skeptics out there, Bart Ehrman, and his claims about this phrase and about what it means versus what it really means. And it's an amazing and beautiful thing. But he'll use it to, to challenge your Christian faith. Um, and we're going to talk about all that. But before we get there... I just want to mention this. Um, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. We're probably getting the translation here because they later say, oh, look, he's calling for Elijah. So Mark wants to record for us something, the Aramaic effectively. Eloi, Eloi, it sounds kind of like Elijah. So that, that explains why they respond to Jesus saying this with he's calling for Elijah. Now he's not calling for Elijah. He actually cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to the question is two, two things. One, he's forsaken so that we can be forgiven. He's forsaken so we can be saved. He is forsaken, given unto death, so that we can be given life. Now, the other reason is because he's quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is my my favorite, I don't know, it's definitely top of the list, top three favorite prophecies in the whole Bible, Psalm chapter 22. Next week, we'll get into that in great detail. As a rabbi, quoting the first verse of a psalm, everybody starts thinking about that psalm now. And um, that's something we should be doing. But we'll do it next time around. Um <clears throat> Uh, let me just also mention briefly, some people will take this phrase, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they will talk about how the Trinity is divided on the cross, that the father and son, the relationship is is severed. And I think that this is kind of dangerous language. We we don't have that those statements in scripture to say that Jesus like stopped being 
and I'm going to use a fancy term here, like ontologically one with the Father, that, it seems to me that would mean that he's just not God anymore. And, and that the Father isn't even the same because God is one, right? What you're saying is God is no longer one. And, and that, you're, you're changing the nature of God. And that's weird. So I'm not going to go down that road. I would avoid the terms. I think it's consistent to take the term forsaken to mean given over to death. Forsaken doesn't mean um, in the nature of who God is that he's no longer one. He's been separated. We believe there's three in one, right? There's no longer an in one thing going on there. I don't think that's the case. I don't think at any point that happened. I think that he was forsaken to the cross. He was given over in judgment, in suffering, in pain to take our death. That's the forsaking he talks about there in verse 34. Then in verse 35, <clears throat> when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. The key to understanding this is to realize they're still mocking Jesus. They don't think Elijah is going to help Jesus. They are mocking him. They're having sport with him. They take his phrase, God, why have you forsaken me? They twist his words as they were already doing with the whole temple stuff they were saying, destroy the temple. And they use it against him to mock him. Maybe Elijah will come and help you. <laughs> That's what this is. This is just continued mockery, even up to the death of Jesus. And... <clears throat> Um, I think they misheard on purpose is what I'm saying. They, they're mocking Jesus intentionally. The drink is here given to Jesus offered again at the end, the beginning of the cross and at the end of the cross, he's offered the drink. He may have actually had the drink at this point in time. It's difficult to tell from the text of the gospels, but he may have had the drink. At any rate, it's done. He, it's over now. He's finished now. So if he did receive it, it was a way of saying like, okay, it's over. Them offering it to him might've been a way of trying to prolong, keep him alive a little longer give him something to drink. Um, people who are dying, sometimes you give them something to eat or drink. Um, it can kill them, but it can also prolong them because it's creating these sensations and stuff that can bring them back. So those are some details there. Um, verse 37, <clears throat> and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And that is, that is an ominous he doesn't say whether there were words in Jesus's cry or not, or if it was just a cry. He doesn't say. He just wants us to know Jesus breathed his last. And the reason it's written this way, breathed his last, I think is to indicate that Jesus was in control of, of when he gave up his spirit, when he died, that he chose the moment, that he was going to, which means that he chose to stay on the cross for six hours and experience three hours of that darkness and that judgment because it was for us. But when the job was done, as he says in John's gospel, it is finished. It's done and he breathes his last. It's over. And that at that moment, I believe, at the death of Jesus, the price was fully paid. I don't think Jesus went to suffer more in hell or something like that. I think that's a a, a weird <clears throat> um, and I think un, not biblically supported teaching. I think when he said it's finished, it's because it really was finished. And to emphasize this, to make sure that we can't miss this truth that Jesus, he lives the sinless life, he bears our sin, he suffers our shame, he dies our, our death, the death we deserve. But... To, to keep us from misunderstanding it, he doesn't go to dust. Like the, the curse of Adam, he doesn't go all the way to dust. He goes to the grave, but then he raises again. And he doesn't go to dust because death is broken now. Death is no longer got the stranglehold on us. We even will die, but we will not really die. If you trust in Christ, whoever believes in him will live forever because he lives. So, so that we can't miss this, so that we know the theology of the cross. Verse 38 happens. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. First, let's talk about the how. Um, Matthew seemed to indicate that this was an earthquake that caused this. 
And now previously, um, depending on what how old your information is, they would say there's no evidence of an earthquake happening around the time of the cross in Jerusalem. And of course, it's difficult to determine when earthquakes happened thousands of years ago. It's not like that's like an easy thing to do. But previously they'd say this. But recently, uh, in 2012, there was an article published. I'll put a link to this article. You could look at it yourself in the video description after the stream's over. I forgot to. But it's the name of the article is an early first century earthquake in the Dead Sea. Now, they're very tentative about this. They basically say, look, and I don't want to overstate what they're, what they're claiming here. They say there was an earthquake um, that could correspond to the one in Jesus's time. Silt deposits and like stuff like that in the Dead Sea indicate that it happened um, around 3180 plus or minus five years, right? Plus or minus five years. That's as close as they could determine. And they said, eh, quote, possible candidates include the earthquake reported in the Gospel of Matthew. So I'll just mention that because I think it's neat to think of that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't prove it, but it's consistent with what we read in the Gospel of Matthew. That's what I would suggest. Now, Mark, however, is not focused on how this happened. That's not his emphasis. He wants to think of us, us to think of why it happened. That's the emphasis. Mark is teaching theology through the events that happened here. Let me put it more accurately. God is teaching us theology through the events that happened around the crucifixion of Christ. And the event is the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. This would be a horror to the Jew unless they understood it. It was glorious. That veil is a tragic reality. The purpose of the veil in the temple is to separate people from the holiest place in the temple. The veil's there to say, you can't come here. No one's allowed in, only the high priest and only once a year. What was behind that veil, what was inside that room, that little room, well, it was a little bigger in the temple during Jesus' time. It was smaller in the original tabernacle, but it had grown with the time. Um, but what's behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant, traditionally, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the um, Aaron's rod that budded, the manna, so a little bit of the manna in a jar from, from when God provided manna for them. And the mercy, it was called the mercy seat. The place was called the mercy seat, which is like the mercy, the throne of mercy. This is a, an altar, effectively, but it's also, also a throne. It's a throne and an altar. Think of the, the interesting element there. It's a throne and an altar. This is where God's very presence was. There were angels, um, you know, structured on top of the mercy seat and their wings were outstretched and there was nothing in the middle to emphasize that you don't ever represent God, right? He's just, he's here, but there's no idol to represent him. Um, but all of these things represent Jesus. The, the Ark of the Covenant houses the Ten Commandments. It houses the Ten Commandments, which Israel broke, which all of us broke, and Jesus obeyed. They had broken the commandments. Jesus obeyed them. He fulfilled the law. It had Aaron's rod that had budded. Aaron's rod had budded. It was just a dead stick and God had caused life to come from the dead. And Jesus, he is the high, the ultimate high priest who fulfills the needs of us as an, for an intercessor by dying and rising again from the dead, life from the dead. The manna was there. And Jesus, of course, he says, like Moses gave you manna, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the true bread from heaven. This is what it was all about all along. And the place is called what? The mercy seat. And it's where once a year they would offer blood to pay for or atone for the sins of the people. And Jesus, he atones for our sins. Then the veil is torn. Like it's, that's a destruction in the temple, but it's, it's a good kind of destruction in the temple because this is the tearing away of the separation between us and God. Exodus talks about it this way. It says that the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. 
So this veil being torn from top to bottom because it's God himself tearing the separation between us and him apart through the life and death of Jesus Christ. You can draw near to God now. You Before that, if a Jew just, or anybody, or even worse, a Gentile, just randomly goes inside that room, like they die. Can you imagine what the priests thought when they came around to the temple later on and were like, I could see in there. The veil's been torn. Like, what did they do? Did they cover their eyes? Did they hide themselves? Did they, you know, how did they deal with this? Um, it's not something they would want to talk about even. Now, some people think it's unfortunate that Jesus is tied so much to the Old Testament. Some people want to unhitch the Old Testament from Christianity. I think this is utter folly. I think we need to understand the Old Testament, apply it rightly, understand it well. But the whole unhitching thing is unfortunate. God wants to hitch you to understanding the Old Testament. And this whole idea of the tearing of the veil, like you don't, you don't even know what this means. You don't even know what the cross means without the Old Testament. Hebrews, which I'm going to cover next after I finish the Mark series. There'll be a little break, then we're going to get into Hebrews. Um, but it talks about how this is like a, a, a feature, not a, not a bug. Christianity being tied to the Old Testament is not an unfortunate, tragic reality we have to struggle through. This is intentional and deliberate and purposeful, and you will not understand Jesus unless you understand him with the Old Testament in mind. And so Hebrews talks about this in a lot of detail. It says that Jesus, that, uh, let me give you one, one quote, Hebrews 10.20, here's one verse for you. And I will go through this whole book soon. Well, sort of soon. All right, Hebrews 10.20 says, by a new and living way that we, we can draw near to God, like we, we come near to him, we enter the holy place, Right by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. I can draw near to God. I can come boldly into this holy place with confidence, knowing I'm forgiven because his, his flesh is the veil. He was torn. He was opened so that I could enter in. I could become part of him. Kind of like Adam was opened that Eve could be created. Well, Jesus was tore open, so to speak here, both with the spear, but also symbolically through the veil that I might be, um, be made into the church and draw near to him. This means you can come with confidence. If you trust that Jesus has paid for you, this means you can come to God with confidence, not arrogance, not with your demands, right? No, no, but with your knowledge of his love for you and his grace for you, that you come confidently. Healthy Christians don't feel ashamed every time they pray because they know of God's love for them. They feel ashamed when they sin, but not when they pray. Do you get the difference? Like shame when you sin is, is, is appropriate. Oh, I feel bad. I shouldn't have done that. But shame when you pray as if you can't call out to God, you can't draw near to God, that his grace is not enough for you. That's not healthy. Read Hebrews. It might scare you, but it's also going to help you, such as the gospel. Um, so now you can come boldly, which scripture tells us. So the temple's left open. Why? Because the job of the temple's been accomplished by Jesus. He's fulfilled all of these prophecies. The, the task has been done, which is why he says again in John, it is finished. Now in verse 39, we have our last verse in Mark for tonight. And it's where the centurion, oddly enough, he's the only guy, the first guy to announce who Jesus is as being the son of God. Now, Others, others say it like like a, a demons or something like that. But we're talking about like a human publicizing it, and it comes from a centurion of all of all people. When the centurion who was standing on the right, uh, standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, "Truly, this man was the son of God." So again, others others have said things, but they've not been public. This is the the first like public proclamation of Jesus as the son of God. It's a theme that Jesus is the son of God throughout the the gospel, but. 
This guy says it publicly. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus is not the Messiah the Jews wanted, and he's not the king of the Jews the Romans feared. You don't know who the Son of God is until you see him dying on the cross. That's the lesson. You don't understand Jesus until you understand his death for you. If you look at him as just a moral teacher, you don't understand the Son of God. If you look at him as just like a vending machine providing answers to your prayers, you don't understand the Son of God. When you look at him on the cross suffering your, your sinful shame, the judgment for what you've done and I've done, now you understand the Son of God. That truly, that's the Son of God. That's the lesson here. This is the love of God for us. Interesting fact, did you know the first time the word love is used in the Bible, it's actually in, in Genesis 22 when God tells Abraham to take his son whom he loves and to slay him. The son whom he loves and to slay him. That's the first use of the word love in the Bible. And the greatest example of love in all of creation and in scripture is when God the Father gave God the Son, his son whom he loves for us. That, I just hope you let that sink in. There's one last thing I want to share with you. To get the theology of the cross, you, you like I said, you go to the Old Testament and the place we're going to go is Isaiah 53 or really Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53 all the way through the chapter. I've talked recently and recently uh, just a few weeks ago on the on the four servant songs of Isaiah but I only talked about the first 3 and I showed how the first 3 are definitely about Jesus they're messianic they have fulfillments in the New Testament connections and they're they're awesome okay but I stopped before the fourth which is the most grand of the four servant songs these prophetic songs about Jesus peppering the book of Isaiah and climaxing in this Isaiah 53 song or song which we're going to read now these are the servant songs cuz Jesus is the ultimate servant who comes to save the Jews and the non-Jews to bring the world to God. And here's how he does it. Let me read this now. And I'm going to give you the short version of this. I have a longer explanation of Isaiah 53, which I've already linked in the description below. You guys can check that out. But this is the short version. I just want to read through it and let you soak in what Christ crucified means. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And this makes it a servant song. It's the way he uses the term my servant in Isaiah. We call it one of the servant songs. They're all about the same person. And, oh, he's going to be high and lifted and exalted up. right? But the irony of this is that his exaltation and his glory is in being lifted up on the cross and dying for us. And we'll see this throughout this uh, chapter as well. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. So he tells the people of Israel, when people saw your destruction and they looked at you and you were like, oh, what terrible things happened to Israel. Look at how they were destroyed. Look at how their temples ruined. Just as people were astonished at you, so my servant will be astonishing to them too because he's going to be so devastated and destroyed. That's Jesus on the cross. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Wait, he's going to... Okay, you've got to know the Old Testament to get this, but... The idea of sprinkling people is to cover them for cover their sins. It's a ceremonial sprinkling of water or blood to cover sins as Moses sprinkled the people and brought them not only to cover sin, but to initiate them being brought into a new covenant, a new covenant like Jesus brings. So Isaiah 53 is telling us he will be beaten and marred and disfigured and he will suffer. And by doing this, he will sprinkle not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. He will become the sin covering for all people. 
Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is, this is the question that hangs after Isaiah, where he's like, but who will believe? Who will believe this message? This is a hard message to swallow, man. Jesus the cross, just swallowing the whole idea of the cross and him dying for you and you having to trust in him to be saved. But the whole point is, will you believe it? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. I think every actor they've ever hired to play the part of Jesus has been too attractive. (laughs) Jesus didn't look like they look okay there was no appearance and he was lowly he's like a root out of dry ground there's like it's just like there's nothing to look at in him in his appearance or in his manner that makes you go wow he's glorious it's his character that made him glorious it wasn't anything else verse three he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief like one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we did not esteem him. So he's glorious. He's my servant. He'll be lifted up, but he's going to be beaten. His blood will cover nations. Um, he'll sprinkle many nations. And he's despised. This is Jesus on the cross. He's hated. He's rejected. Now, this passage, they, many Jews thought was messianic, but they were confused by it. They were like, maybe there's two messiahs? Because one of them apparently is going to die in shame. And then, but there's also a messiah is going to rule. So they tried to figure out how this worked. Jesus is how it works. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Right? That's what they saw on the cross. Here's that Jesus is cursed. He's, He's a curse. And they thought it was his fault. Even his own disciples at this point were giving up. When they hear of the resurrection later, they're very hesitant to believe because they think that Jesus, not only has he died, but he died in such a manner that means he must have been smitten by God. Well, yeah, God smote him in a sense. But why? Because he was pierced for our transgressions. And Jesus was pierced literally by nails and a spear. He was literally pierced by th- uh, thorns going into his head. He was pierced. These were all pierced by the, by the, by the scourging as well. And, and these are for our transgressions. Yeah, he was crushed, but it was for our iniquities. Yeah, he was chastened, right? But it was for our well-being. He, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. This is applied to physical and spiritual healing. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Um, oh, man. Look to my longer video for more details, but <clears throat> but this is it, man. Look, you're a sinner. You need a savior. Jesus died when he died. He dies like taking the punishment you deserve for your sins and I deserve so that we could come back to God. So the door can be open for us to enter in and know him. This is the gospel. This is the forgiveness of Christ. This is his incredible suffering out of his incredible love to give you incredible salvation. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. He doesn't try to stop it. He, he allows himself to be killed. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This implies, oppression and judgment, those words, it implies governmental powers abusing their power to kill this person, this Messiah, this servant of God. So a government will kill him while the people around him think God is cursing him. His death will be because of our sins and not his own. He's actually holy and righteous. His death will cover and pay for the sins of the people 
to bring us to God that we might know God and be healed and forgiven. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus was born on earth. And yet it's the detailed theology and even the historical events that we see happening on the cross. And as for his generation who considered it, that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. This is a heavy sentence. Let me break it down quickly. This phrase, cut off out of the land of the living, it literally means he's, he dies. He doesn't just suffer, he actually dies. Because he's not just cut off from Israel, which is like you have to leave the land. He's cut off from the land of the living because he dies. So he dies, and it's why. Because of the transgression of my people, he's saying Israel's transgressions. Now, some would say the Messiah's, oh, this isn't about the Messiah, it's about Israel. No, no, he's dying for the people of Israel, that's clear in the text, to whom the stroke was due. This is what we in modern terminology call the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And those three words means that Jesus took the penalty that we deserved. He was our substitute on the cross, getting the penalty. The stroke was due us. He takes the penalty that we might be atoned for and we might be brought back to God, given, given um, forgiveness of sin and new relationship with God. Right there in the Old Testament. Yeah, Old Testament. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. That's Jesus on the cross between two wicked men. They assigned him a grave. You're going to die and you're going to go with these guys. Yet, he was with a rich man at his death because Joseph of Arimathea shows up and he buries him in his in his nice tomb. So he's honored in his death. This is to imply the, the irony of how Jesus is suffering as if he were a sinner, but he's not truly wicked, which is why he's at the rich with a rich at his death. Because he'd done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. This doesn't mean... Um, the Father enjoyed the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Rather, that the sufferings of Jesus, the crushing of Christ, um, like appeased, appeased the judgment that is required for our sins. God's just. And being just, he will punish sins. He chooses, I'm going to punish what's wrong. And Jesus, his punishment he received, it was our punishment he received, rather, um, he pleased the Lord. Putting him, putting him to grief, if he, would, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. This is so heavy. Okay, guilt offering is a technical term in the Levitical law. The phrase guilt offering. There's different kinds of offerings. Okay, they could do offerings like you could bring like a basket of, of fruit and you could just give it to the Lord like as a thank, what's called a thank offering. No one's requiring of it. You just want, hey, thanks, Lord, you're awesome. That's just an offering like that. You could do that back in the Old Testament. But a guilt offering is a very specific kind of offering. This is an offering that's meant to pay for sin that has been committed. So he's going to render himself a human, a righteous, perfect human will stand as a guilt offering to pay for sin. Now, human sacrifice is forbidden in the Old Testament. God did not allow them to do it. But he pictured it with Abraham and Isaac, the father offering his son. But he stopped Abraham because, again, God does not want us offering humans. But it was all meant to draw the picture of how one human would finally stand in the place of all humans. And he doesn't get offered. He renders himself a guilt offering. The, the father's, it's not like the father's slaying the son. It's more like the son is voluntarily taking up the cross and going to it. He says, no man takes my life. I lay it down. So... There's a voluntariness here. It's, it's intentional. It's deliberate. He goes to stand before all, stand in the place of all humans on the cross as a guilt offering. Deep theology there. But then look at this. This is the resurrection part. He's going he's gonna to be killed. He's going to be cut off from the land of living. He's going to offer himself as a guilt offering to pay for our sins. And then what? He will see his offspring. He'll prolong his days. This means he's going to live. 
He will be killed, but then he'll live. That's called a resurrection, folks, here in Isaiah 53. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, which I cannot imagine what it was like to feel the shame of every sin I've ever committed, let alone all of us have ever committed. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Now, this is what Jesus alludes to when he says he's going to be a ransom for the many. He's alluding to the many in Isaiah 53, as he will bear their iniquities. He's our sin bearer. This again, this is where uh, uh, progressive Christians want to move away from the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, or basically that Jesus pays the price for my sin, suffering the, the penalty I deserve to take care of the judgment issue between me and God that I might be restored. They want to avoid that but it's right here in the scripture. He bears our iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide booty with the strong. An unfortunate older school word for a term that just means he will experience like he's going to inherit all things. He's going to be the one ruling uh, over all things. Um, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Can I tell you the bottom line is this? Jesus died on the cross so you could be forgiven. His shame, his suffering, they're yours and mine, but it means something. It means I no longer have shame. There's something glorious you experience as a new believer when you first put your trust in Christ, and that is this sense of a completely clean slate between you and God. Can I tell you something? That wasn't just true when you got saved. It's true now. You have the clean slate because Jesus still lives always to intercede for you. And he continues to make that intercession forever. He's our great high priest. And now I am holy and without blame before God in love. It doesn't mean I never sin. It doesn't mean I don't deal with issues or have issues in my own walk with the Lord. But, but the relationship is secured by the grace of Christ and nothing else. Enjoy the peace that you have. Romans 5 talks about, oh, I didn't have this in my notes. I got to take you to Romans 5. Romans 5. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, just believing, not working for it, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace. Therefore, whom also we have obtained, uh, excuse me, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. You didn't just start in grace. You stand in grace. You didn't just get justified. You continue to have peace with God. Today, you are forgiven. Beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for the simple childlike faith of just trusting in Christ and the grace that he's provided. Jesus, how foolish of us to ever doubt the sufficiency of the cross, to take care of our sins, to deal with the, the shame that we've experienced. You bore it all. You carried our shame. You lived it. You became a curse for us. You became sin, so to speak. And you might then therefore make us the righteousness of God. That is good. That is that is peace that we have now. And we just thank you and we rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's going to be just heads up for what's coming up. Um, I've got I've got scattered videos coming up over the next few weeks. But for three weeks, I'm not going to be teaching the Mark series. I have other things going on. In, um, in July 11th, we'll be back in the Mark series. Now, if anybody's interested in visiting me, like for my in-person church service, which I do on Sunday nights, I teach the same study, but on Sunday nights, we're not doing that again until July 10th. Sunday night, and it'll be at a new address. Once I believe it's one six five one six seven zero five. 
I believe it's 16705. But it's Hosanna Christian Fellowship. You just look it up in Bellflower, California, in the main sanctuary, the big building. You see it right there on the boulevard. Um, if you ever want to visit, you're all welcome to come. Um, anyway, that's it. So, Lord bless you guys. Thanks for joining for my epic, super long, longest ever Bible study. <laughs> Until next time, maybe. We'll see. <laughs>